Thank you, brother. Your turn, Steve. Thank you. Thank you so very much for that ministry. I have to tell you, there are three things that you should know about when you get to heaven. The food will be Indian food. Just be prepared. Love spice because that's as good as it gets. Food made by Indians. Two, the music will be country. Understand that. My wife and I have had that debate many times. And I said, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. And she says, well, no, no, that's bad theology, so don't buy me on that. But the music's going to be country music. And the language, she won on this one. The language is going to be the Hawaiian language. Because I was praying the other day. Now, this, I happen, I'm sorry to say I happen to know these folks right here. And you ever notice when you're a preacher, Jerry will tell you this, you always want the designated laugher in the crowd because when you have a joke, you can count them. I know Jan and Alex here. We met in Israel earlier this year. They are escaped from the PLO and they're living in Burlington now. Oh, not that, that, sorry. But they live here in Burlington, so please be nice to them. But anyhow, I was, I was praying the other day and I heard God say to me, Aloha. So that's how we know that the language will be Hawaiian language. Now, with that in mind, silliness aside, let's get about the Word of God um, because the Holy Spirit is in this place because where He is, there is liberty and there is love and there is the centrality of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about tonight. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus is Lord and He is present in this place? And I have to say, permit me to just go for a minute. This has been a renewing week for me. You all are good for my walk with the Lord. I work with all kinds of people all over the world, and it's just been good to be with you. I thank you for your warmth and your hospitality, and I thank your pastor for this invitation among many that he has given me for now decades to follow him around like a bad smell. And uh, he has allowed me to minister as he has had ministry, and, and we're colleagues and brothers in Christ, and I hold it very dearly, and thank you all. Now let's pray. Be about the word. Gracious Lord, in these moments that we spend together, it is easy for our, for our eyes and our minds and our thoughts to be distracted. Whether it's someone new or something new or a problem that is brewing in our lives at home or wherever it may be. For a moment, focus our eyes on you. And we know that that will happen because your word will be proclaimed faithfully, if not well, but at least it will be faithful. And your spirit is here. And you've said that your spirit will always glorify you. So we're looking forward tonight to what you want to say to us, Lord. May we not leave here the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, folks, on this last night that we spend together, I ask you the question that we've been thinking about for four services now. Are we having fun yet? Because our sermon series continues and concludes by that provocative title, Some Serious Fun. I remind you one more time that I said to my church when I was a pastor a long time ago before they fired me. And I said to them, you know, we're a group of people who take our faith seriously and have a good time doing it. And we've been looking in the book of Acts at that group of believers who when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and given a command to reach the entire world for Christ, they took their faith seriously. And oh, they had a good time doing it. We have made the surprising discovery that four, well, actually 47 times in the New Testament, the word phobos, from which we get phobia, 
is used. As it were, think about the fear of God. 47 times in the New Testament. But in the book of Acts, you find phobos shared with us four times. And we have seen God's people. We started out on Sunday morning in Acts chapter 2, that snapshot of the early church right after Pentecost. And for them, there was a holy hush. You remember verse 43? And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Oh, yes, I see that I forgot to pull out my little, uh, whatchamacallit here. All right, we're ready to go. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and that word was phobos. It was a holy hush with God's presence in their midst. And as a result, it transformed everything from their attitude to their actions to their appearance. We saw that. In Acts chapter 5 on Sunday night, we considered when the church experienced the difficulty with Ananias and Sapphira. And there was discipline, drama, and trauma. And that word was found in the midst. It said, great fear, Phobos came upon the whole church. But amazingly, by the grace of God, we considered the after effects. Not just the dastardly deed, but the after effects of this horrible experience with Ananias and Sapphira. And we discovered some secrets to turning turmoil into triumph. I hope you're turning turmoil into triumph. We then last night considered Acts chapter 9, and it was quite a shift in gears as we had a period of tranquility. A little verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, that's tucked in there that didn't catch our attention, but it did last night. And in the midst of that peace and quiet that the church was enjoying, we saw that word was in there again, that they were going on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. And we discovered that the Holy Spirit can help us bring meaning to the mundane of our ho-hum lives that every one of us has to live. Yes, indeed. God's people taking their faith seriously and having a good time doing it. Are we having fun yet? Tonight, one last time, we're going to see in the scriptures where phobos, this fear business, is mentioned in the book of Acts. It is the church, the people of God, getting their house in order, kind of cleaning up their act, as it were. You know, if I take you to the islands with me, and I'm not going home until next Monday, I'll only be, only be home about a week before I go to Southeast Asia, but if I take you back to the islands, and I just saw it last week before I came here, we, have, we live in the tropics, so we have a problem with bugs in the tropics. Our cockroaches, they have to signal uh, landing rights when they come in. They're pretty big, huh, Eugene? And, we, and we, so we, we have cockroaches. Everybody has cockroaches. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Indiana, my mother used to talk about people, and she'd say, you know, they have roaches. <laughs> and then she came to stay with me in Hawaii, and she says, son, you got roaches. I said, Mom, everybody has roaches. This is the tropics. Well... We also have a really bad problem with termites. And one of the ways that they treat termites is that they, they fumigate the whole house at once. So they put a tent over the whole house. It will be yellow and blue striped or red and blue striped. And they put that puppy over there and then pump in that poison. And then you move back in. Think about that. <laughs> but we're, we understand sometimes you got to clean house. Sometimes you got to get rid of the varmints that are living there. Now, by this time, when we get into the passage in a moment, you'll see that the people of God, 
that the, the, the gospel has taken root and the church is starting to bear fruit and world mission is now being accomplished. The very purpose for which we were brought into place. Souls are saved. Churches are being planted. And world mission is nations are being reached. And imposters have risen. Remember last night I said, it's the way it is with your garden and mine. Seeds and weeds. And that happened again. Turn with me. The last time we're going to hear that word, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. This is a puzzling passage. I've struggled with it for years. So I'm going to keep it simple so at least I can figure out part of what's going on in that. Acts chapter 19, verses 10 through 20. Now, Paul is ministering around and he goes to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor at the time. And we'll say more about Ephesus in a moment, but it's an amazing city, highly developed, highly pagan, and so forth. Now, Paul is having ministry there. We pick up with Acts chapter 19, verse 10. And this took place for two years. He's ministering in the synagogues so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a profound statement right there. They're covering the earth. Verse 11. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried by his body to the sick and the disease left them. The evil spirit went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the, the evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one fellow named Seva, he was a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now let's get, that's written kind of hard to understand. You got fake exorcists. There's genuine exorcisms going on, and fake exorcists come onto the scene, and they're trying to piggyback on this business of Jesus whom Paul preaches, but they don't know what they're talking about. Here's now what happens. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now's where we want to focus in, verse 17 and following. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many of those who had believed kept coming confessing and discuss, disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted up, up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Keep your eyes in that passage and, and your heart as well and notice the interesting mix of words. You've got the fear of the Lord and his name being magnified. Phobos, the fear of the Lord and the power of God. We don't normally think of those two things going together. I remind us, God is never caught off guard, outmatched, or defeated. 
Now we find ourselves in the city of Ephesus, and we have to understand Ephesus just a little bit. It is one of the leading cities of that region of the world at the time. There, it was a religious center with the worship of Diana or the goddess Artemis, which was profound in that cultural religion of the day, and it was a wicked religion, replete with temple prostitutes and all that would go with that. The Romans had made it a provincial capital, and they had spared no expense to develop that city. We'll say more about that as we move along. Just know that Ephesus, as a seaport at the time, is a cosmopolitan. It is a wicked and vile. It is a complex place. And it is in the midst of that that Paul plants this group of believers. And the challenge always, when God's people find themselves immersed in the culture about them, is are we going to influence them or are they going to infect us? That's the challenge every one of us has to wrestle with, even in today's world. Now, I want to speak to you tonight upon the theme that I call holy hazmat. You ever heard that term hazmat? Hazardous materials. My wife works in the Honolulu Fire Department. Okay, she's done that for 31 years. And we know who and how they work, the hazmat team. I can tell you where they are. I can tell you the jobs that they have with all the shipping that comes through our place. They are very alert to toxic chemicals and those kinds of things that might occur. I suspect here in this part of North Carolina, certainly in Greensboro and in Durham, and maybe even in, are we in Alamance County? Okay, we might have a hazmat team here that is highly trained, got all of the state-of-the-art equipment to deal with something serious and toxic that would be in our midst. We have this fake exorcism that occurs. God dramatically calls out those fake exorcists. Then look at what happens, not just, and don't focus on the, the drama of the exorcism. Look at the results like we did with Ananias and Sapphira. What happened afterwards? The after effect, the impact as it were. There is great, the passage says, great phobos, great fear came upon everyone. And that's when hazmat had to kick in. The church discovered that they had to be purified. When this fake exorcism and the clash of cultures and religious value systems between the scriptures and the occult clashed head on, something had to give, and God's people realized we've got a problem and we've got to fix it. I want you to look at two things that you will see in this basic simple outline that I will give you. We will focus on in verse 18, and notice it says, those who believed kept coming and confessing. It raises the issue of what we will call residual contamination. That's the problem. That's the infection that is there. It is those who kept coming and believe, who kept coming and confessing is not the community, but the Christians, not the society, because they didn't care. It is the saints. There is residual contamination within the body of believers. For God's people, sometimes there is an occasional deep house cleaning that needs to occur. A serious prayerful purging. Illustration. Think about the Apostle Peter 
in Acts chapter 9. You remember he was in prayer and the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. Now Peter was suffering from a disease that many of us might wrestle with called hardening of the categories. Because he, he practiced as it were cultural and religious and ethnic preference. He didn't like to be with Gentiles. He was a good Jew. Now he's a believer in Jesus Christ, but that old mindset that he had been raised with stuck with him and wasn't about to be gone. And the Holy Spirit said, Peter, we still got some work to do. Let me refine you a bit more. And he gave them this dream, this vision of a sheet and said, what I've called clean, you no longer call unclean. Now think about that. This is Peter we're talking about, who had walked with Jesus for three years been baptized by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, preached and seen literally thousands upon thousands come to Christ, had performed various miracles. This great servant of God still has some unsavory personal baggage. Hawaiian word we use is upala. There's some junk, some trash still in his life, some leftovers. You know, more than one follower of Jesus Christ still has to work through some racist feelings on occasion. Those old ideas, those old ways of thinking, those deep-seated feelings tucked away in the back corner of your heart, the Holy Spirit knows they're there. And more than one of us have had to work through that the good news is the Lord loves us enough to deal with even that. But notice what the Bible says about God's people needing to clean up their act. In Peter it says, let judgment begin with the household of God. And let's take the gloves off for a minute and say, brothers and sisters, you and I name the name of Jesus. We claim to have been brought from death into life, to have been set upon a rock, to have been given a new, renewed mind and a new vision, and a new agenda in life. And that means that we are held to a higher standard, and we endure, and we embrace a stricter judgment. We understand that more is required of us because we name the name of Jesus. Do you embrace that in your life? Do you willingly say, Lord, scrutinize me? Shine the light of the Holy Spirit into every part of my heart and life. Like David, search my heart, O oh God, and try me and see if there's any wicked ways in me. Take me like a dentist and poke and prod and, and use those tools to look at the places that no one else would see, but you know are there, and I know they're there because I can feel some infection, something that isn't right. God, work in my life. So we see that indeed there is for possible for every one of us in this room who name the name of Jesus, been washed by the blood of the Lamb, are committed to Him, there still may, may be some residual contamination. Why did that happen? That could be the Lord telling me, your sermon is done, son. <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrible? No, you don't know. I'm not putting that up to a vote. I did not put that up to a vote right now. All right, now the second thing, if we've got... Re <laughs> I'm a highly trained professional, can't you tell? All right, now, if we've got residual contamination, well, what are we going to do about it? Are we just going to live to live, learn to live with the stink? 
Are we just going to accommodate the filth and the rot in our home and in our lives? Or are we going to address it and find that there can be effective or effectual decontamination? Now, we were looking at verse 18 earlier, those who believed, making it clear, it is the church that needed to deal with its contamination. Notice as well in verse 18, it says that they kept coming and confessing. Kept coming and confessing. I submit to you, it was no casual or temporal act. Rather, it was perpetual until it was done. The language in which the New Testament was written speaks in tenses. Past, the present, the aorist, perfect, past perfect, and all that stuff. And you don't need to know that. In English, when we hear tenses, we think about time. Something that is the present, or the past, or the future. The Greek language is more concerned with the type of action. And when something is in the present, it is emphasizing that it is continual. That it is ongoing that it is repeated, that it is a process. And this is in that tense, that they kept coming and confessing. Illustration, you know, I put myself through schooling, uh, painting houses inside and out. I like particularly to do in interior painting. And I was old school, and partly because it was before the new school came along. So I didn't do spray painting like they do nowadays. I was roller and brush, and I meant business about it. And I like to do my work well. One of the things I learned is that sometimes you will encounter a stain on a, on a ceiling or on a wall. It's a water stain or it's mold. And you can put a coat of paint over that. You can put primer and then paint. You can put 15 coats of paint over that. You come back tomorrow, you're going to see that stain. The only way you're going to overcome that mold, that water stain, is you have to get something called stain kill. It's a denatured alcohol. It stinks to high heaven. And you've got to put that on there, and you've got to kill that stain, 100%. When it is dried and dead, then you can repaint, and then you can make progress. Otherwise, you are putting perfume on a pig. And when you talk to people in North Carolina about pigs, they identify. I've understood that. Now, <laughs> let, let's, let's begin to understand the decontamination that was going on. You see, first of all, there was initial confession. Initial confession. When they realized that God was dealing with serious stuff in their midst, notice what they did not do. There was no effort to explain. There was no effort to justify the God, God's people did not rationalize. Nobody made an excuse. Let me tell you something about Stan. I gave my heart to Jesus in a little church about like this when I was about 11 years old. That means that for more than half a century, yes, it's been that long, for more than half a century, I've known Jesus. I've been walking with him. And I've had the privilege to be with other godly people. And I've had the privilege to do a bit of study on this thing and to serve him and so forth. But I'm going to be honest with you, folks. I still wrestle with the old man, with the old nature, with the old flesh. And there are stupid lies that I believe because I tell myself those lies. The devil don't have to lie to me no more. I'll do it for him. 
And so I start to believe those things and I start to, to think those things. And I'll tell you one, I'm being very candid. One of the struggles for us in ministry, I don't think your pastor struggles with this, but I do. And that's envy and jealousy of others in ministry. Especially when you're a speaker, you're supposed to be going around speaking all these places. I look and say, how come they got that invitation? I didn't. They're having that big time conference. I'm not there. I'm just running around with New Gene. It's just awful. <laughs> and I pray about that. And I confess it. And I have to work on it. But here's what I've discovered now after some half century of walking with the Lord. I can never plead ignorance when it comes to sin. Never. I know what I'm doing, and I know when I'm doing it. And I know when I've done it. And so does God. These people knew the same. And frankly, so do you. John the Baptist was baptizing believers out in the Jordan River. Saw the Pharisees coming because they didn't want to miss the boat. They said, oh boy, this is going to look bad if we don't go. So they said, well, we'll go out there and put on a big show. And John saw him coming from afar, and he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath of God to come. And then he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. In other words, don't just think a good game. Don't just believe a good game. And don't you just talk a good game. You do it. Several years ago, I was preaching at a little church in the Waianae Coast on the island where I live, Hawaiian church, where they sang Hawaiian music and so forth. And I was, when I was home, I would help them out and so forth. And one Sunday they said, we want to have communion. I was serving communion to that little church. And as we're taking our time and going through the bread and the juice and so forth, someone stood up in the back over there and said, if I have done anything to offend anyone, I ask you to forgive me. Then they sat down. Pretty soon another person stood up and said, if I have done anything to offend anyone, please forgive me. And they sat down. A third time, somebody else. If I've done anything to offend anyone, please forgive me. And sat down. Then I decided to go for it. I said, folks... This is interesting what is occurring. And I said, I think it's good and it's noble. But have you ever noticed how easy it is to give a blanket general confession? If I've done anything to anyone that may have offended you. That's kind of a get out of jail free card, isn't it? That's a whole lot different than going to someone, looking them in the eye. And saying, when I said or did this, I hurt you. And I want you to know I am sorry. And I ask you to forgive me. To whom, for what, do you need to ask someone for forgiveness? For reconciliation. And you need to do it. Face to face. The master spoke about this and he said, when you are at the altar bringing your sacrifice and you realize your brother has aught against you, when you're making your sacrifice, that was the pinnacle of religious worship. He said, leave your altar at the sacrifice, go to your brother and be restored to them. 
and then you come back and finish your ritual of worship. In other words, don't act spiritual. Go take care of business. That's why in the Old Testament it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Samuel says, it is better to obey than to offer sacrifice. And so I'm unashamedly challenging you tonight to move beyond if I've done anything to offend anyone. To look deep into your heart and say, is there someone I need to address personally, face to face? Now let me give just a word of caution. I've heard it said that the circle of confession needs to be equal to the circle of offense. Let me explain. One time in a church like this, a lady stood up and said, uh, I want to confess I've had an affair with half the men in this church. And every man in the church felt an elbow in the side. <laughs> you kind of get the point, don't you? That if only one person knows about the pain, that's who you go see. If there are more, then you talk to them. If it is public knowledge, then you address it publicly. The circle of confession should be equal with the circle of offense. And secondly, be specific. Not only was there initial confession, there was continual confession. Again, it is written in the Greek language in the present tense, which means it is repeated, it is thorough, it is ongoing. In Hawaii, we have a saying about, and my wife is ethnic Hawaiian, so we say this about them. They say it about themselves. They say, you know, Hawaiians don't eat till they're full. They eat till they're tired. <laughs> well, it's true. I'm here to tell you that the verb luau is in the present tense. You just keep luauing. You keep eating, as it were. Now, notice in verse 19, it says that they brought their magic books and their trinkets. And they burnt them in the sight of all. In the sight of all. What a scene that must have been. This is God's people doing it. Going home and in their closet, grabbing stuff out and taking it out. And in public, forsaking it and burning it. Naming it. I had the privilege some years ago in a foreign country to be at a Hindu idol burning. Where former Hindus who had come to Christ brought the preacher over and said, let's clean out all those idols from our home, from our lives, from our hearts. We are trusting Jesus. And in the passage, it says they burnt them in the sight of all. And it was worth a whole lot of money. That was one big bonfire, don't you think? That was what was going on because it was continual. I had the privilege to be in Ephesus a few months ago. First and only time I've been there. And I was impressed by the, the, the predominant building in the main thoroughfare of town. Romans built around a thoroughfare. And that's a place where there would have been little shops and there were, as it were, condominiums where the people lived. There was a public toilet. That was fascinating. I could tell you more, but not tonight. And yet, as you go just a little ways on where the amphitheater was, it seated maybe 20,000 people and Paul preached there, we think. But... In the middle of town is this three-story building. I could put a picture on the screen and show you what was the library. And while we were there, it was suggested to us by Beverly. She said, it is possible that the, the books that they were burning came from that building. Because right in front of the library was this large plaza, a public square. 
And so it's more than likely the scholars would say that the Christians took books that they had gotten in that building and burned them there in the center of town, which brings us to our third point. It was not only initial confession, it was continual confession, it was visible confession. This raises two issues. The first is accountability in the church. Accountability, strong word. Was it about three years ago that Steve Harvey, the television personality, was the presenter or the MC of the Miss Universe pageant? Some of you are shaking your head yes. Gentlemen, why do you watch the Miss Universe pageant? <laughs> There's a football game on. I realize they're not playing in bikinis, but come on. All right, so anyhow, do you remember what Steve Harvey, the, the, the goof he made? It came down to the moment of we're going to crown the champion. And he says, and now the Miss, you knew Miss Universe is, and he named her name. And the confetti started to fall, and the balloons went off. The band struck out. They came out and gave her roses, put a tiara on her head. She started marching down. There she goes. And everybody's all excited. Yay! And Steve goes, stop. Stop. Folks. I read the wrong name. Notice he did not try to slide by. He did not say, somebody gave me the wrong card. Uh, they, put, they printed it wrong. He didn't do that. He said, this is all on me. That's accountability. June the 5th, 1944. The largest armada in human history was set to invade the beaches of Normandy. The commanding five-star general of the Allied forces is Dwight David Eisenhower. He's wrestling with the weather. He's wrestling with the logistics. He's wrestling with the ferocity of the enemy and the battle to come for the largest armada in human history, armed invasion. He makes an, an effort that night to go visit the paratroopers, and you've seen the photograph of him talking to those paratroopers, realizing that he has made the decision that will send thousands of men to their death. Later they would find in his Eisenhower jacket, you know that little jacket that he used to have with a short, short waist around it? They found a handwritten note in his pocket that he had composed on June, June I'm sorry, the day before. He had composed this personal note. And here's what it was. As one who was meticulous in his planning, he had even planned in case the invasion of D-Day failed. And in that note, he explains to the press and to the president and to the world that this had gone horribly wrong. And he takes full accountability. The last sentence of his handwritten note in his own writing said this, if any blame or fault attaches to these attempts, it is mine alone. Accountability, particularly within God's family. You know, the Bible says in James 5, 7, 5 16, confess your sins one to another. I don't want to ask you tonight, when is the last time that happened here? Inside these walls, at your executive committee meeting or consistory, whatever you may call it here, when is the last time that that was the business agenda item where you were getting right with God and with one another? Or the trustees? Or in a Sunday school class? See, I know how these adult Sunday school classes go. You get together, 
and you have a lot of fun, and that's great because the fellowship is critical, especially in our busy world nowadays. You need to know you're with folks who love you. So you laugh and you cut up and you carry on. You talk about the football game that was played the night before and the potluck coming up next Sunday and all kinds of wonderful things. But when is the last time in that body of believers where we're supposed to love and care and encourage and edify one another? When is the last time that somebody said, folks, i got to confess. I'm out of bounds. I've done some things that are harmful. And I ask you to forgive me. And you name them. When is the last time that happened? And when is the last time you were sitting around with folks and instead of complaining about the church, about the preacher, about the evangelist, you started confessing and saying this was wrong and what I thought and what I said and what I did was wrong and I ask you, Lord, and you brothers and sisters to forgive me. Accountability. They not only saw accountability inside the church, but that gave them authenticity. You see it on the screen in the larger community. The outsiders, the people in the town of Ephesus, there is this public bonfire, and it, because there weren't street lights, they could see it all over town. Think about it. And I imagine they said to one another, hey, the Christians are having a big weenie roast. Let's go. Check it out. Now think about when that big bonfire in that public display is going on, at that time and place they would have known who was there, what they were burning, and they would have heard what they had to say. That is why, that is the fulcrum of this entire encounter. Because they were confessing their sin, that is the reason verse 20 happened. Listen to verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In the midst of a dark and wicked city, when God's people fell on their face in, in humility and in confession. The Lord honored that and Ephesus had revival come to it. And people came to Christ. Have you spent time fussing about modern day America? And thinking this country is going to hell in a handbasket? Have you grumbled to one another like Brenda and I do? All we do nowadays is sit around and grumble about the young generation. We love doing it. When's the last time we stopped complaining and said, God, use us. Use me to be a, a light. Use me to bring reconciliation and restoration and to shine the hope of Jesus in people's lives. If you want to reach Burlington, start a fire. In fact, that is the consistent result that happened in each of our four passages over the last four services. Have you seen that pattern emerge? That when the church experienced phobos, it's put in there on, a, on occasion, on purpose. When the church experienced fear of God, it exploded. Every time, check out each passage. Evangelism is not a program. Evangelism is not a strategy. Evangelism is not a technique. Evangelism is not a speaker. Evangelism is not your pastor. Evangelism is revival. And what is revival? Revival is God's people on their face, on fire. You want your church to grow? You want Burlington to be changed? 
Get real. Get right with God. And start burning. Phobos. Fear of God. Let's have some serious fun. I feel we need to take a moment and be quiet. I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You know what he needs to do. Let's take a moment of awkward silence and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Let's wait upon the Lord for just a moment. The Lord, if the Lord has dealt with your heart this week, you have three options. Ignore it. Go home in your prayer closet and don't come out until you're a different person. Or deal with it right now and seek God. As we conclude with this last song, there will be no Manipulation, there will be no begging, there will be no singing on 48 verses. We're simply going to let the Lord lead. If you need, if it will be helpful to you to be intentional, come forward, pray. You want to talk to me? Fine. You don't want to talk to me? Fine. You talk to the Lord. Or it may be important that you go to another person and you spend time with them in prayer. Confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. You hold in your heart and in your hands the key to igniting a fire that will start in this church and spread to this community and can go around the world. And now is an opportunity.